0: Hi, I promised to do this other podcast and I was thinking about it. Uh, this is like a request performance, and uh, I'll tell you why I decided to do so. I have a friend, Mrs. Uh, Freeman, live Freeman, and she mentioned to me that this week is the yardstick of her grandfather, I guess. And she's the great granddaughter of Ari Leman, the famous Sadiq Abu Shalim. Uh, perhaps I have to always remind myself. That a lot of people listening to these are not necessarily uh older people. I run into a lot of teens, ran into a guy yesterday from Bethel or whatever. Um, and a lot of names and things that I take for granted, people will uh not necessarily know. Uh for those of you uh who are younger, perhaps, you go and Google Rabbi Arya Levin and uh, or better yet get the book which is out there all over the place called Sadik in our time. And you'll find uh, a very good, um, I guess, biography or something like that. Stories of a very unusual um, person in Yerushalayim. Died in 69 and was very active in the first half of the 20th century. And the person I want to speak about today was his son, Rechaim Yaakov Levin, which would be Lolly's grandfather, uh, who, uh, it, as I'm reviewing... Uh, what she and I learned together, because there was an article in the short magazine that I did together with her, her request, like a biographical article, and it was like a Forrest Gump story, that's the reason that I'm attracted to it, and I'll explain what I mean as I go along, but once again, for those of you, especially younger people out there, um, maybe you've heard of, maybe haven't provided you live in, that's the name you want to check out. Let me say this, Many years ago in Baltimore, used to have something called the Baltimore Hebrew College. The Baltimore Hebrew College, which was a uh, secular Jewish institution for teacher training and that sort of thing. Um, in Chachmat Yisrael, but you don't know what that means. And, you know, in Jewish studies, let's say. And they had a very big library, and nobody ever used it. So therefore, it was my private library. And I had a great deal of benefit from it over many years. and Because uh, I used to go there, and there was nobody there. Say so I have like 50,000 volumes. I don't know what they had over there and magazines and, you know, journals or whatever. And Bishwili Nivra Olam. It's very interesting. I really uh, regret the fact that the Associated Jewish Charities of Baltimore decided literally to tear the place down and turn it into a parking lot. That is literally what happens. Which shows you that Jewish um, culture has crashed in the non uh sector of American Ju- uh, Judaism. They have no respect for culture anymore. That's why you have an abominable uh, ignorance and that sort of thing going on now. I'm not speaking about observance of mitzvahs and that sort of thing. I'm talking about Jewish knowledge. Now, having said that, long ago, I'm talking 40-some years ago, I once was in the Hebrew college uh, going around looking for something. And this is a secular library, so they have all kinds of swarms there. They so- certainly do. Uh, Rabbi, what's the name? He used to go there all the time. The Hasidic Rabbi Sternhill. Uh, He's the only other one I ever saw there, Rabbi Rodenberg. <laughs> he didn't see too many other people there, and they weren't there. For the non from books, they were there for the Rears farm. But usually, you didn't. M- most of the books there are what you would call um, non-Torah literature. So, uh, very valuable, but non-Torah literature. And I remember long, long ago, I mean, I'm talking in the mid-70s or something like this, before my sister was married. She got married in 79, so I'll tell you why I say this. I once walked in, and as I'm walking by the long shelves, the rows of shelves, I see there's this Book with a with a smiling rabbi with a great beard on it or something like it. This somehow didn't fit in, you know? And I figured, what is this? What the heck is this? And I picked up, it's called Sadik in our time. This one more or less when the book came out. And I figured, oh yeah, yeah, one of these uh, you know, uh hagiographical books, or something like that. Uh meaning it's not gonna be they're all the same, you know, the person was a a genius since was a baby, it was a tsodik, all that stuff. Uh but I opened a page just for the heck of it. And then I opened another page and another page, and I couldn't stop reading it. And so I said, I took the book out, and um, I brought it home. This is the story of every hour you live in. And uh, so I remember very clearly I lived at that time. Like I say, it was myself, my mother, my sister. My father passed away. So we're talking about in the late 70s. And um, I, I, I came home. I remember it distinctly. It was a Thursday night. And I said, boy, I got this most unusual book from the Hebrew College. You know, her mother and my sister took a hold of it, and I said, let me just see it. Next thing in, I was <laughs> you know, it's gone. Don't see it for a week. Then my sister got it, it's gone for a week. And then I had to give it back. Had to take it out again. Had that nature to it. And Raya Lee was a big tzaddik, but the stories are not the normal stories. That's what I'm trying to say. He was big in Erzisro, uh, with it being the, the, the I can't even generalize on this. The rabbi of the prisoners, he went to visit the jails, and the, and the, uh, it was all with the Irgun guys in the 40s, and, uh, you know, and, and, and the superlative tzadik, and this person gave you a shirt off the back and lived the life of great poverty on purpose, and, you know, helped everybody. It was a carve of a lot of people for Judaism. I'm, gonna, uh, I'm not doing justice to it. You'll have to go and read read it yourself. That would be a, a podcast by itself and probably a long one. So, anyway, for those of you know I'm talking about, I don't have to explain. And for the younger ones, I advise you to go and get that book. Now, so, pff, Mrs. Lolly Friedman, who is, I say, the great-granddaughter of Davari Levin, so she said, uh, came to me a year ago, two years ago, whatever, with this big, uh, fat volume of the Yashurin, which is the premier Torah journal now, that comes out once or twice a year. And they had a whole section about her grandfather, and they're including a biographical section. I should go over it with her. And I said, fine. Um and uh oh we're friends and uh i figured you know just be a biography and then we read on and on and on and the interesting part was like i guess it's a forrest gump he knew everybody he met everybody it's like a walking uh you know tour of the i guess the first half of the 20th century um, and therefore uh it deserves uh a mention in in, in terms of uh, what i can say today although i didn't know him I don't know that much about him, but probably more than you. <laughs> and uh, outside the family, so with those weird introductory marks, I begin. If you're looking, we're talking over here. You were shalim long ago. Uh, to put a, 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 a geographical, I a, a chronological spin on this, uh, Rivario Levin was this uh, Jew in Lithuania and White Russia, um, who. Was born eighteen eighty five and died in six, 1969. So that means he was uh, in his eighties when he passed away, right? In, in mid eighties, and uh, he met and you know from obviously, and he learned in some of the in in Lithuania. And then, the interesting thing is in nineteen o five, so I guess that would be when he's twenty years old. When he and in 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 not to be in the Russian army, so he made aliyah, which is very unusual in those days. This is before the First World War. So he's real uh, from real Tadek. And he moved to Yerushalayim, and he uh, got smiched from cook. Here's the interesting part of the story, as far as I'm concerned. This is the old, real uh, Yerushalmi elites, the Litvish elites, in which politics wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, I know to the American, they'll say right away, is it the is it the Mizrahi, is it this group, is it that group? This can drive you crazy. If you read the story about Rabbi Men and his family and others, it's beyond that. You know, it can drive you crazy. It's a little bit like the Shaduchim world. When I was young, they didn't say like this: "Is the mother green? Is she purple? What color is the the dress?" Now they got to know, you know, what exactly Shiva was it in? What, what kind of tablecloths they have? Would you call this person modern? What do you call it? Does he have a black hat? Does he tilt that to the left or the right? You know, all those questions that they find in the Shacharim now that they try to box everybody in. What do you do to the people that don't want to be in a box? What do you do about that? They don't know what. They don't know how to handle it. So, the world is taken over by math and science weirdos. They have dominated the culture. That's the culture in which we live in now, can I tell you? Now, uh, Roddy Levin, therefore, came to Yushalayim. Uh, he, got, he got a job there from Rav from Ruf Cook. Uh, Ruff Cook had just moved to Israel in Yafo, uh, if you know where he was at the very beginning, Ruff Cook. And uh, he met uh, Roddy Levin, and they became very close. And this has nothing to do with politics. And he actually helped him move to Yerushalayim, and uh, Ravari Levin got married there to uh, uh, his wife, who obviously was a tzedekist, so she's willing to live that uh, life of great esteemiousness and uh, doing without in order to help others and do chesed all the time. Uh, I won't go into the yichas over there because that'll take too long. Um, But anyway, he got married there, and he raised a family, including this uh, Chaim Yaakov. So here's somebody born in Yerushalayim, before the First World War in 1911. Uh, There was quite a Jewish community at that time. Of course, it's before the British and everything took over. And uh, this is the old Yerushalayim and Meisharim and all that sort of thing. And so you already had the city divided into Frum and Not Frum. But the Not Frum hadn't really taken off in a big way. And the Frum world was divided into, I say, the, the Litvish and the Hasidish, more or less. And, uh, you know, you had Eitz Chaim, Yeshiva, and all those uh, institutions in which uh, they had equivalent of what you have now. In other words, you have a Talmud Torah, Yeshiva Kadana, Yeshiva Gedol, and all the rest of it for the smaller from community of that time. And anybody who's from a Mood Yerushalayim at that time is already self-selected. Get it? Hear what I just said? It's not big Aliyah. Not, this one moves here. That one moves here. They're obviously uh, self-directed to be different than most others, and have a Teshuka to want to live in Eretz Yisrael, and Yerushalayim, Yerach Kodesh, and uh, suck up the Kedusha, and the Torah, and all the rest of it. And these are people who want to be Talmud HaChemim, so uh, it's going to be a life of Torah and uh, and Eretz Yisrael. So that's who our hero is. Now, um, here goes the story. So this young guy's born in 1911, so put those years together. So he's growing up, I guess, during the First World War, right? Uh, which broke out in 1914. The First World War ended in 1918. I don't know if you know anything at all. You probably don't. First World War was really tough in there. It's just because it was a starvation. Besides everything else, the Turks were in charge. It was up to the Turks they would kill all the Jews there, but they were allied to Germany and Austria. And Germany and Austria at that time, believe it or not, wouldn't let the uh, Turks kill all the Jews. So it was a precarious existence. And food, forget it. And times were very tough but whoever, and many died, whoever didn't die, didn't die. Now, um, that puts you at a young boy growing up in these uh, tumultuous years and going to Cheder, uh, where his father is like what uh, became the um, or something like that of the uh, of the young boys. And um, here's the part I like. Uh, like I said before, this is like a forest Gump. Who's this Chavrusa in, the, you know, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, all the rest of it? Uh, well, this boy Chaim Yaakov Levin uh, turned out to be an Eloy. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be an interesting story. So he says, a genius and has a, a memory, you know, can memorize photographing memory and then, you know, memorize all the Tosas and all the rest of it. And his Chavrus is Shlomo Zaman Arbach, who's a young boy. And uh, what I like is, here's a real story from yesteryear. They're in the, this uh, Cheder of uh, old, you know, back in Yerushalayim. And he skips a grade uh, because he was that smart. Well, guess what? The other kids don't like us, smarty-pants that kids are great. Even if you're super from Jerusalem in, in 1918 or 1920 or whatever, and uh, everything's supposed to be saturated to a year, boys are boys. And who's this guy that, you know, dares to be in our class even though he's a year younger? And when he gets bar mitzvah, uh, all the boys boycott him. You hear what I'm saying? No, because they all jointly together. Okay, it sounds like girls, doesn't it? He says, they all say we're not going to come to the bar mitzvah. If he has a bar mitzvah, none of his, friend, none of his classmates show up. Isn't that a story? none that was classmates show because they're angry at him. Uh, except one, and the one is, of course, Eshloem Zahnarbach. And that's one of those stories of Eshloem Zahnarbach. And he says, I'll bring you a present. So this is just a chevra in which he's hanging out. Now, um, Yushelein becomes very interesting after the First World War because that's the British mandate. And for 30 years, from 1918 to 1948, right, the British were ruling Palestine. And... From a broad point of view, it's very complicated because they wouldn't let a lot of Jews into Palestine. On the other hand, from a narrow point of view, if you were Jewish living in Yerushalayim, the British years, to be perfectly honest, were good years because the British kept law and order. They did, and they allowed Judaism to practice itself, uh, you know, unbothered. And so Torah and the yeshivas could grow as much as the internal dynamics of the Jewish community will grow. You can't blame it on the British. The only thing is, of course, he had the rise of secular Zionism and they kind of took over and uh, offered a competing culture. He really had a cult- culture conference, they called it, culture battle, which kind of Jewish culture should be the predominant one. The Haredim obviously wanted theirs to the exclusion of everything else. The, uh, the new Chilonim wanted theirs uh, pretty much to the exclusion of everything else. So the Haredim would have, you know, the traditional yeshiva, the Meish Sharm and that sort of thing. And al of Sharm and the Chilonu, and had the gymnasium, and then eventually Hebrew University. These are two alternative tracks that are uh, developing. It's very interesting uh, in slime in the uh, years of the Mandate. And uh, here's a Barry Levin who's teaching the boys, and uh, has this genius son who's growing up. Because you can see already, you know, he gets he gets why That's I say. You name it. You name the big famous rabbi lived in Israel. And he gave this boy a and then you know he passed the pin test and all the rest of it. And uh, he meets everybody along the way, he becomes a student. Visers Zalman Meltzer, because he's brought in from Europe to run the Ets Yeshiva, the older branch. And Barilan, Mayor Barilan, the Mizrahi leader, gives him a test, and he can pass the uh, what do you call it, the pin test, and all that sort of thing. And uh, so here's a young guy growing up, probably being the best and the cheder, the best in the yeshiva. The best student of Abyssal Zalm Melzer, who then says, as the by the end of the twenties, uh, you know you can do better than here. See, that's the funny thing. At that time, you think, what's higher than Yerushalayim? Uh, what's more uh, kaddish than Yerushalayim? Well, it depends who you are. Uh, from a, a very mystical uh, point of view, and the, even the Hasidic point of view, it doesn't get better in Yerushalayim. I mean, many many points of view. But if you're, uh, you're actually the governor of Jerusalem in the 1920s was a British guy, Sir Ronald Storrs, who wrote a famous uh, uh, autobiography called There Are No Promotions After Jerusalem. Because even though he became a governor of Canada and Africa, he's over the years in Yerushalayim with the peak, you know, just have this chus. And he wasn't Jewish. So from many points of view, Yerushalayim is number one. But not if you're Litvish. If you're Litvish, this is just interesting to me. The The, the highest place in the world is where the best... The, the the most advanced learning is going on and this is all else. so like, is go back to Lithuania to Europe and, and learn by Baruch Baer so this is weird here's a guy growing up an Eloy at least to me living in Yerushalayim but they say if you want to really learn how to learn uh, you know the super longest then go to the biggest uh, you know learner of the day and go to Kamenitz Kamenitz is in Poland but it's the part of Poland that used to be Lithuania and he goes and learns by him for a year or two and then he, i told tell you, it's forest Gump. And then uh, he, Rebarch Bear, sends him to learn and talk and learning with her. Briskarov she's like, touching all the bases over here. And meanwhile, all during these years, Ruff Cook made his business to be close with him and talk to him always and learning. Uh, because, you know, who doesn't like the young Eloi if the Eloi has good minos, This is always the problem. In Judaism, we have two types, at least, I think, I think. We have two types of eloy's. You have the eloy who's an eloy and knows it, and it's not so easy to be around. That's number one. And then you have the eloy, is much more rare. That uh, is a nice guy. Yes, you know, so he's very nice, and he you know, doesn't mind learning with somebody less than him and give you the time of day. And it's very just good meatos And being the son of Ariel Levine, you're going to have both. So who's not going to like him? And uh, therefore, a cook. And then Ralph Herzog comes to Israel, and these are the ones who give him the smicha. By the way. His mother's sister was married to Tzvi Pesach Frank, who was the Rob Rushdie with So he gave him a smita. So I told you, he's like plugged in with everybody. If you read this article, you're going to come across everybody along the way. Uh, now, this puts you in the 1930s. Here's a young man, about 20. And Rav Cook tells him, since you're such an elo and you're bucking Kudjum, write a Sefer and Kachem. And he puts out like age of 20 or something like this. It's, uh, apparently, he's very hush of a Savior that I never heard about. Um, because that's the fate of the 20th century. There are a ton of big learners. This I happen to know. There are a bunch of big learners, and they know a veldt, but you want to know something? The veldt wasn't holding by that in those years. Um, there was, this is the tragedy of the rabbinate of, the let's say, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s. And that is you know, the Baal could can appreciate what the person has I strongly suspect that Rabbi Chaim Yaakov probably was like that uh, it's clear to me from what I'm reading that he knew everything by heart and he was big you know, all the svaris and the alamdus and all the rest But where do you exactly have a community I mean, a synagogue or a community out there in the 30s, 40s 50s, 60s, 70s, which is the years of his life, right who can appreciate uh, uh, somebody like that not in America. You see, you and I live in times, things have changed. The yeshivas in Israel and America have now turned out entire generations of Balabatim. You go to schools in Baltimore and elsewhere, uh, maybe on prejudice called the Baltimore, and Israel certainly like that, in which you have row and row out of Balabatim, who aren't rabbis, and they're not, you know, rebbees and yeshivas or anything like this, but they've gone through yeshivas and A, they have an appreciation for learning, and B, some of them know how to learn. I mean, seriously. And so we have in Baltimore and elsewhere, you know, synagogues, which have many people that understand learning, and, and somebody like that can appreciate a Rav, who's a gone, ah, dear. But if you're talking about 50 years ago, 70 years ago, yeah, I can't really see it. I hope I'm wrong, but I can't really see it. Not not Not, not as I recall from my distant youth. Um, and here's Rabbi Levin, you're, you're now, uh, you know, 20, 25 years old. He got married in the thirties to girl from London. And now what do you do? So in an ideal world, an existing yeshiva would give him a job in an ideal world. Uh, because clearly somebody like this was top level and would be an excellent magasheer or something like that. Well, guess what? There are very few yeshivas in the 1930s and they're all, you know, every job is closely guarded. You understand? That's like it's a family business. Every job is closely guarded. And uh, the few positions that are out there, somebody's lucky enough to get them. But it's rare. There are very few ships. For example, in the United States of America, at the time he got married, in the 1930s, he had YU. Uh, what else do you have? You have Toradas, You know, and one or two small other places, you know, that's it, whatever. You know, very small. It's not what you think. It's not what it was later. And there is, there was a tiny MTJ. You know, with nothing. You know, it's, 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 it's a... Uh, you know, it's skoky out there. It's a little bit, but not much. And um, this is a tough world of of yesteryear. You have to, you know, grow up and, and live in the right time and place, as they say. And so Rabbi Chaim Yako Levin, come, right, what it said was like this. Mayor Barilan, who was the head of the Mizrahi and knew everything. It was a nice person. Uh, he was a good friend of Rabbi Ruderman, by the way. He's, I'm talking about the son of the Natsiv, the one who founded the Mizrahi party. Uh, he... So, I guess, go to America. It's like uh, when the First World, Second World War breaks out, and uh, you'll be able to get a job there, maybe in Hawaii or something like this. Well, he came to America, there was no job. And what do you do? And I don't know exactly how it happened, but, uh, and I know there's some people listening to this podcast from Seattle, so they'll be able to send me the information. But somehow or other, he crossed America and went over to Seattle to start a yeshiva there, you know, like in the late 30s, around 1940 or so. Hear what I said? to start a yeshiva in Seattle, Washington, now i tell you the truth, I've been there a few times, and uh, it's a beautiful uh, area, and uh, and and I can see there was a a, a community yesterday. My very kind uh, host and driver, Eli an is probably listening this, drove me around quote-unquote old Jewish Seattle, like I'm doing old Jewish Baltimore on Sunday, he knows old, boy does he know old Jewish Seattle, we went to Rabbi Shapiro's old Shul and things, and um, I don't know what Shul Rabbi Levin was, but he came there to try and make a shiva. Now, by the way, it might have worked. I wasn't there. It's, uh, just as a historian, it would be very interesting to see what were the chances of Seattle taking off. Because that's what Rabbi Ruderman did in Baltimore. The only difference is Baltimore had like eighty, ninety thousand 90,000 Jews, and Seattle probably had ten, twenty. So it's it's not so simple. And as happens, the shiva didn't happen, uh, but he became a rabbi, Devin Schultz. Uh, and this is just very interesting. Because to set up a yeshiva back in those days was an avodas It as much easier to be a rabbi. Plus, a lot of people wanted to be rabbis. If you're a good speaker uh, and you get a decent congregation, whatever. Well, I, I myself knew uh, one or two people years ago. I won't say any names in, here in Baltimore that they were perfect for malgachir. In fact, they were offered in big yeshivas. Maggot uh, share job, which today somebody was considered at the top of the pile, and uh, instead they want to be rabbis of Shoals, which makes no sense, but that's that's uh, was America in those years. Uh, it's an interesting question I'm raising. Would you, Yes, somebody, would you rather be a Rosh Yeshiva or a uh like a Rabbi Kalevsky type of that sort? Would you rather be a rabbi of a large synagogue or something there? It's a, just an interesting uh, question I'm raising. Uh, anyway, so here's this person that knew whole and all the rest of me, and up being around me in Seattle for about 10 years or so. And uh, I'll tell you again, Seattle is a very pretty city. And I could see, I myself have been two or three times to speak in Seattle. And I'm asked people there myself, you know, seems like a community to be perfect if somebody set up a yeshiva there could turn it like into, into a mini Baltimore, so to speak. Because yeah, what it takes in America for a, a community to become solid and big and all the rest is one locally sheep like a near israel type situation but apparently it's easier said than done because i've been in a number of communities but seattle state said in my mind to be perfect perfect for that in many ways but whatever uh and then eventually he switched to um to uh jersey city which on the other side of the country right next to new york this is still in the 40s late 40s when these communities still existed newark jersey city uh, you know i don't know patterson whatever uh, these were like, uh, you know, uh, what's the right word? Satellites of New York. So you live over there you're near New York City. And they had large Jewish communities once upon a time before the neighborhoods changed and all that, and the riots and things of this nature. And uh, once upon a time, these places were rocking and rolling. And uh, when I say rocking and rolling, I'm talking about in the synagogue sense. Now, these are not big McCombs at Toro. I read somewhere that when Ravon Cutler came to America, as you know, he landed in the West Coast. And uh, so I think he met with Rabbi Chaim Levin. He said, why don't you come and help me join, start up Lakewood or something like that, which, again, is an example of what I'm talking about. He, he could have gotten in the ground operation being one of the heads of Lakewood, but who knew which way it's going to go? Uh, like I said, I'm raising more questions than answers because I myself don't know the answers. But these are very, as a historian, they're very, very interesting in terms of the what if. But here's somebody. Look, every name neighbor touched by Brian Cutler. I mean, you know, there's, there's nobody he didn't meet. Uh, of course, because he was from that level of learning, you know, from the top level. And um, here's another side of it. Uh, here's another side of it. If you read the Exotic it's, it's in Our Time by Ravali in, you'll see that one of the people he got close to and was one of his biggest fans was Malcolm Begin. It's always been um, what's, a, what's the right word? It's always been like a certain uh, sad irony. If Abari would have lived another 10 years, I guess he was in his 80s, but listen, Rebel Yasha made 100, I think, didn't he? Reb Shach made 100, it could be. If he would have lived another 10 years, Baker would get elected. Prime Minister in Israel, he would have given him the whole world, because he worshipped Ari a little bit. So, um, last year, I did one of my lectures, so uh, Lolly Friedman was nice enough to send me one of these uh, photos that Menachem Begin, whenever he visited America, would always stop in Jersey City to, you know, spend, spend time in the It pays respects to Rebbe Chaim Yaakov, because anybody who's a son of Arif Levin is automatically a saint, you know. It's a very, very uh, The whole story of Menachem Begin and their family is just uh, very, very uh, remarkable. Um, I would just... I'm remembering that I'm talking of here, because all I do is ramble. If you get that book from Yudavner. Uh, was it, on the Prime Ministers? And uh, when he, you know, was Begin's political secretary or something like that, and he said, you know, the first and second days in office, Begin is calling up somebody to raise money for yeshiva run by one of Arya Levin's sons. And he said, what are you, a schnar? And Begin said, no, I'm proud to do this. Happy to do it. You know, anything connected with the with Arya Levin, I'm happy to do it. So... Uh this is Rabbi Chaim Yaakov, it therefore it's a rabbi in, in uh, Jersey City, I guess in the 50s and 60s. These are the years, it's sad, you know, these are the years that these communities all fell apart. They fell apart because of the different changing demographics. Uh, that's the story of America. Uh, the old, It's quote-unquote the old neighborhood. I'm going to go in Baltimore on Sunday to the old neighborhoods. What happened to the old neighborhoods? Well, same thing happened to the old neighborhoods in Baltimore. Happened to Jersey City, happened to Passaic, happened to Patterson, you know, all the Newark, uh, you know, all over the place. And uh, therefore, it's, uh, you know, you had big communities once upon a time, and then you didn't. So again, uh, here we have a uh, someone who's a great go on, all the rest of it, he was a very good speaker, too, based on what I read. I saw we did a few of his speeches. You know, you can see he's a professional orator in the sense that he knows I take a medrash and uh turn it into a theming, you know, old school eloquence from the big Chacham. You gotta know your chazals to be able to do that well. Um they have it on this in volume. And uh and then uh I think his father passed away in sixty nine when he came to sixty nine they said, Listen, uh you become a rabbi over here in Israel and he took it to be in part Hana Now I did a little bit of research on this and I saw during Herzog when he was old and dying, he wanted Rabbi Chaim Yaakovim to be his successor, as chief rabbi of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Now, that's not going to happen because you've got to be politically connected and you have to be politically ruthless and play politics. And he doesn't seem to have been that sort of a person. You know, he's too too much of an honest, uh, clean person and too big of a Talmud to do that. But uh, And there's other things. they wanted to be rabbi in Yerushalayim. But all I'm trying to tell you is like this. They don't offer the regular God to be chief rabbi of Israel. They don't offer a regular rabbi to be chief rabbi Yushalayim. Uh how many people you know like this? You have to be a gonadir there to, to get into that to that league. Um and so uh he spent the rest of his life as far as I see in the Rabbi Impartizana, which is uh, you know, one of those real Israeli Israeli uh, communities. And uh, you know, I think they have all types of Jews over there. And uh, this probably was perfect for him. I'm just guessing. Probably is perfect for him. Because in Eretz Yisrael, you don't have the kind of divisions that you have in America. You have different sorts of divisions. But in Eretz um, you have the type of... Let me put it this way. What's so unusual about the story of Levin? He Levin? And the answer, at least to my mind, goes like this. And it's, Unlike father, like son. You know... We all are familiar in America, most of us, th- those listening to me, with the idea that in Israel you got all these fardim and they're not from exactly, but they are. You know what I'm talking about. Meaning, you know, they don't necessarily observe this and that and the other, but they can. And sometimes it's the easiest thing in the world for them to come Shabbos. Maybe they'll slip out of it, maybe they'll slip back into it. But they're not really ideologically divorced from Yiddishkeit. They're just in a, what's the word, a sleeper mode, you understand? And so if the right person comes along, Gargavad, Yosef, whatever, he can get them to flip over at night and become Shomotar Mitzvahs and all the rest of it, and they can do it. So in other words, they're not from, but they're not ideologically, uh, what's the right word, you know, anti-from. They're not ideologically atheist or something like that. But we often contrast that with the Ashkenazim. And we say, I do it myself. They say, you know, Svaradim, that's one thing. you get your Ashkenazi Jews in Israel, the Chilonim, bad news. They are totally divorced from anything, and they're anti. What's the name? Yair Lapid, these kind of guys in Israel. And uh, they just have no gene. You know, they're missing a gene when it comes to uh, feelings for Yiddishkeit. But that's actually not true. Meaning it's more complicated. It's 50-50. Half the Ashkenazi Jews in Israel may be like that, but the other half are not. The other half are people... So, if you press the right button, would become from, or or very respectful for, from Kite, and respectful for Torah and Rabbanim and that sort of thing, if approached in the right way. Unfortunately, things are such in Israel that the firmware are a turn off and make demonstrations and all the rest of it, and they've alienated a lot of the potentially, uh, in my opinion, anyway, a lot of the potentially sympathetic, non-from Ashkenazim out there, which is just not a good idea in general. The reason I'm making a big deal out of this is, you think, you, if you ever read the story of Rabbi Ari Levin, uh, because he was a, such a big Tzaddik by nature, and he helped everybody all the time in all places, he had a big following among these types of non-from-Ashkenazim. You see? Non-from-Ashkenazim. Who, because they respected him he helped when he helped them, when they were suffering in the Irgun years and the, and the Lehi and because uh, they knew that he, you know, he'd give a you know, shirt off his back to people... And just, it was righteousness, you know. Uh, they were completely turned on. And whether or not, individually, they kept Shabbos all the time, kept Kasha all the time, is a separate issue. But they totally respected it and were prepared to. I remember reading somewhere, I can't remember where, just to give you an idea what I'm talking about, that uh, there's one time when he was uh, 55, but seventy years old, they think they made some parade or something like this. You know, shall have all the ex air gun guys. This is during the Ben Gurion era, era, when the people who weren't in the Haganah were looked down upon, and they want to make some kind of parade or to give them some kind of a gift. And he said to one of these guys who was super not from. He said, if he would really want to give a gift. I'm not telling you you have to, but if you want to do something, make me feel good. Don't smoke on Shabbos. <laughs> and the guy said, I wouldn't do it for anybody else, but for you, I'll do it. And that's what I mean when I say that certain people had, uh, certain of the Ashkenazim have their gene, the button on there If you press the button the right way, then they can be turned on to uh, from kind. uh 100%, 10%, 20%, but each one. It's very different than somebody, you see me have a cold. Some uh, somebody who's like, uh, you know, a uh, Bishita, like a communist or something like this, you know, who won't have any time for anything Jewish whatsoever. Uh, now, Rebari Levin was like this, and Rebari Levin, as best as I can tell from what I read, is like that also. When he was in Pardis Khan in these places, these people know how to be Mekarov, they're from. You get it? They know how to attract them. What do I mean when I say Mekarov? I'm not talking about turning somebody into Shamashabas turning somebody into somebody as an appreciation for, for Yiddishkeit. And at the end of the day, with this, I'll conclude because I'm already going long. At the end of the day, I want you to listen to this. The success of the yeshivas depend on a sympathetic uh, population out there, uh, willing to in Israel, I'm about, to tolerate that the yeshivas continue. The guys don't serve in the army; they're sitting and learning, and the other people say it's okay because there's the majority of the population which is not from want to, they'll vote all that out. They'll say, I'm going to cut off all the money for the yeshivas. You guys have to go out and join everybody else. Uh, there's nothing special about uh, learning more than something else. And then they'll be up the creek. Then you'll have a real crisis on your hands. The yeshivas in Israel have, the firm world has depended, whether realized it or not, on the, at least, passive goodwill of the non-firm for 70 years now. Uh, now, if you have people like, or people like that, who give off positive vibes, then the non person from person says like this. I mean some of them not exactly religious, I don't keep this and that and the other, and it's true my son serves in the army, this one doesn't serve in the army. But it's a good thing that they're doing. You understand? The learning of Torah is not for me, but somebody should do it. It's a it's a good thing and I'm willing I'm willing to put up with this situation. Um, if not, if you get people who are turned off, all they do is just uh, what's the right word? you know, just criticize and uh, give off uh, negative vibes, uh, then you alienate. And if you alienate all the non-from, I repeat, all the non-from, there's going to be a real crisis on the hands. So I uh, will just end this by saying that uh, people like Rabbi Chaim Yaakov and those types are very, very much needed in Israel. In America, too, but America's kind of late in the day. Unfortunately, you know, the American is split across a giant chasm they uh, really are. But in Israel, not so much. Uh, some, yes. I just read Haaretz, you know. But uh, many not. And if there are more people like this, uh, then, as I said before, you would have much less of a strain between the from and the from, And the yeshivas would be able to do their things with the acquiescence of the others. With the acquiescence of the others. Uh, if only we lived in a world in which you know the non from acknowledged the importance of the from Kite and the from acknowledged the value of the non from. Let's put it this way: this guy may not be serving in the army, but then have appreciation for the person that is serving in the army. Which, by the way, you did see in the last war. You know, remember the shiva guys came to dance with them and bring them pizzas and things like this. Um, you know, if there, if if somebody says, "I'm not doing it exactly, but I appreciate what you're doing," uh, that's a giant step in achtis. And the actus is at the end days what it's all about. So I hope I've done a little bit in uh, sharing a, a portrait of a person that I don't think most of us knew much about. And if you're able to read Hebrew, you go into the uh, uh, the assurance. I forget which volume it is. I think it's uh, number thirty. You read as I say before a real story that you come across everybody who's anybody in the course of the life of uh, this man. And uh, as I say before, the example of uh, bridging between the different groups and uh, trying to, sh- to to show uh, a positive side. Bring out, let's put it this way, bring out the positive of the from towards the non-from and the non-from towards the from. That is uh, uh, a reason enough for people like that to be remembered. No, not remembered, uh, imitated. Imitated. And have a good Shabbos.